Take a network break. Greg Farrow's away, so we've got special guest Tom Hollingsworth. He's bringing the virtual donuts. You may know Tom from his excellent The Networking Nerd blog or his role as an event lead for the Tech Field Day events or as co-host of the Rundown podcast from Gestalt IT. Uh, Tom, welcome. Thanks for stepping in. Well, it's good to have uh, you again, Drew, as one of my good friends and uh, co-hosting some fun looks at the news. I have a whole bunch of virtual bear claws over here. Thankfully, <laughs> I didn't swallow a lot of them yet, so I won't be doing the Chris Farley thing. So I didn't mention in the invite, but are you able to do this show in an Australian accent? Because otherwise it's going to throw off my pacing. Unfortunately, there is no one on this planet that can sound quite like Greg Farrow. And Lord knows that I've tried. <laughs> All right. We'll have to muddle along. Uh, we got a bunch of stories today, including stuff, uh, news from HPE, Aruba Networks, Microsoft, and some security issues to get into. Uh, before that, let's handle some business. We're sponsored in part today by Palo Alto Networks. You can securely enable remote workforce with Palo Alto Network's Prisma Access. It's cloud-delivered security that protects all user and application traffic while ensuring an exceptional user experience. You can get a virtual test drive at paloaltonetworks.com slash resources slash test dash drives. And we'll tell you a little bit more about it in the middle of the show. And after the news, we talk with sponsor Telia Carrier about their global IP backbone and the IP services it has available in the US. We also dig into how Telia is upgrading its network for 400 gig. All right, let's jump into the news. HPE announced a bunch of capabilities for its GreenLake platform at its recent HPE Discover event. Uh, GreenLake, if you're not familiar, is essentially a private cloud offering. It lets customers consume servers, storage, and networking on-premises with a pay-per-use model. Uh, the first new GreenLake feature is called Lighthouse. Uh, details were scarce on the ground about what Lighthouse actually is, but the press release says Lighthouse will, quote, autonomously optimize different cloud services and workloads by composing resources to deliver the best performance, lowest cost, or a balance of both, depending on business priorities. And HP says customers can use Lighthouse to run workloads at their edge in colos or in the data center. Uh, Tom, I'm presuming Lighthouse essentially is doing several things. One, orchestrating resources for a workload, doing some optimization so that it isn't under or over provisioned, and then metering them so HP knows how to bill you. Yeah, that's exactly what Lighthouse is. It is a dashboard. It, at least from what I can tell, they want you to log into Lighthouse and do all your stuff there. And then Lighthouse does all the stuff on the back end. So you know how in the networking world, we've heard about all these policy engines that you type real language into. It's like, I want to block all the users on VLAN 8 from going to this website. And then it goes to the Cisco switch and does the thing. And it does the thing on the Juniper switch. And you don't need to know the CLI for that. The Lighthouse's dashboard is basically that, but for cloud. It's like, I want to stand up, uh, you know, an elastic load balancer instance, but I don't want to pay more than $30 a machine for it. Uh -huh. Okay, well, then it's going to move around in the back end and go, okay, well, it's cheap over here right now. It's really expensive over here now. We're going to bring it in-house if we have to. And the nice thing is, it's all invisible to you. Supposedly, that's the magic, supposedly, yes. Uh, and I know Lighthouse is using uh, HPE's Esmeral container platform. Esmeral is essentially a container management software. It's supposed to make uh, it easier for you to run Kubernetes clusters um, and also designed for big data and analytics applications. Yeah, they really, really want you to standardize on using containers because then that makes the workloads slightly more portable. Because I think what they're trying to do is they're trying to convince people who have on-premises workloads to put some of them in the cloud for the purposes of capturing some of that spend reduction, but also when your spend gets stupidly high in the public cloud to bring some of it back in-house so that you can you know, kind of average out your workloads. It's not, uh, not too different from people in the Southwest averaging their electric bills over the entire year. I'm sure that <laughs> HP is benefiting from the, uh, the OPEX gains that you get from doing that. 
So the other thing that HP announced is Project Aurora. This is a secure attestation framework. The idea is to ensure the integrity of your hardware, firmware, OSs, and workloads. So Project Aurora is essentially building off a hardware validated boost boot process and cryptographic signature. So you can essentially fingerprint firmware so you can make sure the code is valid as it launches. They also say they're going to use their trusted platform modules on ProLiant servers to make sure the integrity of the OS kernel and executables. Yeah, so this is part of that Cytel acquisition that they got last year. Um, it gives them a zero trust aspect that I think they needed. If they're trying to sell GreenLake as the everything as a service to their customers, which they're positioning at it. And if you don't know, HP has bet the farm, mom's farm, and the, the little piece of land down by the creek on GreenLake. Yes. There is no going back from this, which is great because if you're going to do it, do it all the way. But I think that they're starting to realize that there are pieces of green light that they really need to focus on. And that zero trust aspect was one of them, because if they're trying to get a lot of heavily regulated industries like financial or medical sold on green light, they have to offer every piece to meet those regulations internally, as opposed to trying to partner with another company, because even if it's crappy, it's still HP, which means it is one finger to point when it, something goes wrong. And I think that a lot, that was holding up a lot of these deals. So I'm glad that they're integrating this. And I love the idea that they're at, they're validating it with hardware root of trust type stuff. But, you know, again, this has got to work for them. Otherwise they're going to get egg on their face. And this is not Apothecary's HPE. They can't just go out and drop $10 billion on a company to fix a tiny little hole that they've got. Yeah, this secure attestation, attestation stuff is it's very difficult to pull off. Uh, there's a lot of moving pieces. You have to get everything right, including uh, you know the basic hardware trust modules right inside the hardware. So if you screw it up somewhere, it's going to break the whole chain. We are seeing a lot of uh, concern around um, supply chain vulnerabilities. So I can see why HP is digging into this, particularly as a differentiator. And they've already, you know, by saying GreenLake, you can run it on-prem, it sort of helps them buy into those organizations who are maybe unwilling or can't because of, you know, regulatory or compliance issues, can't put stuff in the cloud. Uh, so this furthers that sort of more reason to keep it on-prem because of this attestation capability. Yeah, and a lot of the things that were released around GreenLake, not just the big, the tent poles like Aurora and Lighthouse, was very use case specific. So, you know, electronic medical records, or you know a bunch of financial stuff and i think that that's where they're trying to take green light they're not just saying it will do everything for you because that you know you and i have dealt with that before when someone tells us oh it'll do anything you want you're like no 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 no, <laughs> nothing does everything that i want i think they're getting very specific about what it is and isn't capable of doing and they're trying to apply that to very specific workloads because they need people to understand we get you we know what you need and so when the regulated industry stuff starts popping up, that's where they have to have those answers so that their salespeople don't get caught flat footed. That's right. Uh, last but not least, the uh, one more announcement that jumped out for me is silicon on demand. This is another GreenLake feature. Customers can essentially add processor cores and memory capacity with just a few clicks, as opposed to having to order or install new processors. So I assume this means you get a processor that already has a bunch of cores built in, but only part of them are active. And if you need more, you pay a fee and then click a button and activate them. Yeah, that's pretty close to the way I, I imagine it too. What, yeah, think of it like I, I dealt a lot in the the years past with uh, WatchGuard firewalls, where they had three models, like the, I, I forget what exactly what they were, like the 100, the 200, and the 300. Well, they were all 300s under the mm -hmm. hood, mm -hmm. but you paid a licensing cost to unlock the extra capacity. And that's right. really all it was, because it was the same chip, same RAM, same everything. 
Um, this works for HPE because they only have to keep one box in inventory if this is the way that it works. So we're going to ship you a sled of X number of processors. And if you're not using all of them, oh, well, we got paid no matter what. And we're going to try to convince you to ramp up the licensing cost. And they partnered with Intel to do this. Intel doesn't care. We already <laughs> sold HPE all the chips. We're good. So this kind of helps them with that whole foundry of everyone uh, mentality that they've gotten themselves into. I just don't know who's going to buy off on this idea of, you know, I'm going to ship a rack to your location and you only have to pay for what you use. Well, I'm sitting over there scratching my chin, drinking my coffee going, why are they charging me to use stuff they already shipped to my place? So I, I don't know. I know that composable infrastructure is the future and the way and the light. I just am having a hard time wrapping my head around idle capacity sitting around just because I won't pay to unlock it. Well, my take is it's essentially embracing that as a service consumption model and bringing it right down to the CPU, uh, which I guess is sort of the logical extension of the whole Green Lake philosophy. Um, and we also know, this is Greg's favorite refrain, that uh, enterprise customers say they're worried about money, but they aren't really. They will spend money if they think they're getting uh, a good solution or at least have that one finger to point, as you so nicely put it. Yeah, enterprise customers leave deep fingerprints in every dollar that they spend because they want to be able to justify the cost when someone comes looking for them, when they're like, how, how did you spend $48,000 on Amazon last month? Like, <laughs> you told me to do it. All right, we've got links in the show notes if you want to dig into all the GreenLake news. Uh, Aruba Networks, they're owned by HPE, also made some product announcements, mostly revolving around Aruba Central. Uh, the big takeaway for me is that Aruba is prioritizing Central to make it more of a platform to deliver services as opposed to just being a management console. Uh, so first thing that jumped out at me, the company announced Aruba Central is getting cloud-based authentication capabilities to authenticate network and device access. You might say, wait a minute, doesn't Aruba already have... ClearPass, yes, it does, uh, but you can use Central if you don't have ClearPass. Uh, you can use Aruba Central as a standalone authentication service and apply your rule-based access controls. So I guess it's Aruba trying to make it a little easier for folks who maybe haven't bought into ClearPass to still get some authentication capabilities with this Central product. Yeah, this, this fills a gap because right now, if you need authentication, the answer is ClearPass. Um, and that is a $50 solution for a 50 cent problem. Um, ClearPass <laughs> does a lot of things. Unfortunately, it you have to pay to get it to do those things. There's no option to just say, I wanna pay for the authentication features in ClearPass. So by giving people a simple method in uh, Central, it gives them, uh, one, it gives them a solution to a problem, but two, it gives them the capability to buy up from there. Cause you notice how <laughs> they're very careful to say that if you're already using ClearPass, you can still use it. And if you're already using Central now to do this and you want to go to ClearPass later, it's a really easy method. Um, they're building more and more stuff into ClearPass and, and Central is kind of their, their hub. But I think ClearPass is like hub plus. Like Central and ClearPass gives you unlimited capability if you're willing to write the check for it. Right. Yes. ClearPass is if you're all in on things like uh, NAC and Radius and uh, policy stores and so on. Uh, Central seems like sort of ClearPass light as an easy onboard for some basic authentication capabilities. And if you want to upgrade to ClearPass later, I'm sure Aruba would be happy to talk to you. 
Oh, I'm sure they would, and they will be more than happy to come out and talk to you about all of the features that you can unlock. And if you'll just sign right here, we'll take care of the rest. So this authentication feature in uh, Central is expected by the end of September. Uh, they're also adding an IoT dashboard to Aruba Central, so administrators can get a better view of IoT sensors and other unmanaged devices running around your network and connecting. And you can set policies around how and what those devices can communicate with. They also do some IoT fingerprinting based on DHCP and DNS behavior. Uh, they've also got a database of IoT devices in their cloud data lake uh, to give you that IoT goodness. Yeah, this is something that ClearPass has been able to do for several years now. You can look at a device and say, okay, that looks like a thermostat. It has the MAC address of a thermostat manufacturer. Here's the profile that you need to attach to it so that it doesn't try to talk to your fish tank or your POS system or something like that. Uh, again, moving some really good ClearPass features down into Central, almost like a as a trial. And I'm not I'm not saying they're cr intentionally crippling them. I'm just saying that not everybody needed to manage 100,000 IoT devices. Maybe they just needed to manage 100. Right. And Central is more than capable of doing that. Plus, when you look at all of the messaging coming out of HPE Aruba now, it's all about edge. They're super focused on the edge. They really want you to know that they are capable of taking care of all of these new edge devices, especially with all the folks that they brought on from Silver Peak. So I think that this is kind of giving folks a chance to whet their appetite on those edge features so that if you're looking at doing a big IoT spend, why not use HPE Aruba to help? all of those problems. And if you're in the market for some new switches, Aruba also has you covered. They announced a new line of Ethernet switches. There's a ruggedized line for industrial and outdoor use and a family of switches targeted SMBs and for branch and remote locations. The SMB switches come in 12, 24, and 48 one gig port options. And what does the edge look like now? It is a wastewater treatment facility that needs a ruggedized switch that won't go down when it gets wet. And it is somebody's house. Uh, although if you need a 48 port one gig switch for your house, we need to talk because I want to come live at your house. Exactly. Um, I, I do want to mention that Edge uh, was uh, bandied about quite a bit, both in the Aruba announcement and HPE. They also seem to be all in on Edge and co-location and this whole notion of workloads anywhere suited for that location. Yeah, I don't think they're going to get caught flat footed again. If there's another issue that causes massive digital transformation, just, you know, out of nowhere. They realize that their differentiating factors all come from the edge. When you think Aruba, you think access points, you think small edge networking. When you think HPE, you don't think public cloud, you think private cloud. And so they realize that the edge has been redefined to be, you know, IoT, people's houses and, you know, multi data center stuff, hybrid cloud that includes private data centers and colos and things like that. So they're tripling down on that and they need to, because if they're not, they're going to get eaten alive by the AWSs and the Amazons of the world because AWS is like, oh, Edge, we do that too. Here's an outpost. Here's exactly. 10 outposts. Right. Yep. All right, moving on. Microsoft, they unveiled Windows 11. It's the latest version of the once ubiquitous and still widely deployed OS. It's set for release by the end of the year. Uh, Windows 11 will be a free upgrade if you're using Windows 10 already. The new OS includes Microsoft Teams app as part of the OS. Uh, this caught me by surprise. I think it may raise hackles among competitors, particularly Slack. And I seem to recall a move with Internet Explorer browser back in the day that ran afoul of antitrust law. So I don't know why they're dicing with this again. Because they really want people to use Teams. Um, I And uh, listen, I'm sure that Microsoft did an amazing job of fixing a lot of the problems with Teams. And being the fourth horse in a four horse race makes you still better than Oracle Cloud. I don't I don't know. There's a there's a cloud joke there. No, this 
I, I mean, I don't know. This this to me feels like they're what they're going to do to get around the antitrust laws. They're going to go, well, you don't have to use it. It's it's there if you want to. And then they're going to start crying. Well, you know, Apple includes iMessage in OS 10 or OS, Mac OS now. Um, and, and we'd love in fact, they even said we'd love it if they would uh, port it to Windows. And I'm sure Tim Cook was laughing his way straight <laughs> out of his office in the spaceship because, no, <laughs> we're not going to give up a competitive advantage. So I, I don't know. I mean, yes, yeah, Slack has a really good argument there. I'm sure, you know, Cisco Spark or whatever they're calling it now. I think it's back to WebEx now. Yes, they have a good argument. But Microsoft is saying, well, you know, because if you buy like a, a Microsoft 365 business uh uh subscription now you get teams for free mm -hmm. so this to the to me this is just them saying well we're just going to put it on the system anyway so okay yeah we'll see what happens i expect uh a thousand lawsuits to be launched but we'll see um i know at the same time that uh that they're adding uh, essentially bundling teams with the os uh ceo sata nadala was apparently quoted without irony saying the, the world needs a more open platform you know, this isn't Gates and Balmer telling us that we need to open up the the kimono and, and let everybody else run everybody else's code. I at least believe that Satya in his heart thinks this. <laughs> I think his developers are probably chuckling in the background. But yeah, so, all right, cool. You need the you need to open things up. Let us look at the code inside of Windows 11's kernel and and do that. We both know you're not going to. No, no differently than Apple would. No differently than Google would. I mean you know, Linux is Linux, but that's, I mean, I think what he's trying to say is, is that when he could, I think he needs to open up everything else too. He needs to take that first step. Okay. You want a more open system? Cool. Teams runs everywhere. We're going to run it on any, we're going to run it on a fridge if we can get away with it. <laughs> now it's your move to, to meet us head on where we are because they've already done a really great job of this. I mean, if you, if you think that he's not being genuine, Go fire up your iPad and start typing something in Word. And then think to yourself, would Bill Gates have ever let Microsoft Word run on anything other than a Windows box and that special sweetheart deal that he gave Steve Jobs to get it running on uh, the Mac? Uh -huh. Yeah, I guess I feel like... <sighs> Microsoft talking about openness, uh, maybe I'm just still too uh, caught up in the old Microsoft of your, uh, that just seems like a lot of happy it's, talk. It's no different than IBM telling us that on-premises hardware doesn't matter anymore. I like record <laughs> scratch, squealing brakes kind of thing. I'm like, wait, Tom Watson's IBM told me that hardware doesn't matter. So, I mean, everything's relative when you think about it. I guess we're in the upside down. Uh, other features include the ability to run Android apps in the OS, so you'll have to get them through apparently the Amazon App Store running inside the Windows Store, so a little nestled uh, application development there. Uh, speaking of Windows Store, Microsoft is going to allow developers to use their own in-app payment systems uh, for apps you buy in the Windows Store without having to give Microsoft a cut, and this is clearly a direct shot against Apple, which has faced complaints about taking a cut of in-app purchases from third parties. Uh, however, if you do use Microsoft's own in-app payment system, they will take 12%, still less than Apple's 15%. And 12% of nothing is still nothing. Um, and if you think that I'm laughing that all the way off, I want you to go buy something from the Microsoft App Store. Do you know that Microsoft has an App Store? Because the last time I knew about it was when they were trying to sell me that horrible Windows RT tablet, because the only way you could run software on it was from the App Store. I don't use the App Store. I barely use the App Store on my Mac. 
because I would rather install software and not have to deal with it. I mean, obviously there are things that I have to buy through there, but this is basically begging people to use the app store, but I don't, I don't trust it. I mean, we've seen issues with it already. I just, man, I don't know, unless I have to like that. It, 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 God help me if I ever have to get a surface for some reason, I, I know that that's going to be a big deal. But yeah, I just I don't I don't see Microsoft winning the battle of needing to get people to embrace their app store by lowering the cost while Apple is currently sitting in a court case with Epic trying to defend the reason why they need to keep theirs with gems like sideloading things is actually reducing freedom. And uh, this is for your own good. So I think that this is ultimately a lot of posturing and everyone's just kind of kind of, you know, I don't care. Yeah, I agree that Microsoft definitely is way, way, way behind Apple in terms of its App Store presence, although I think they've got a, a strong footprint in the gaming community. And so maybe that's an area where they can have a little differentiation, where if you want to build a platform on Windows for gaming, we're not going to take a cut if you use your own in-app uh, payment system, which, you know, could have some traction in the gaming market, considering how Apple is doing a fantastic job of telling gamers everywhere we're out to get you. Or game <laughs> developers, at least. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a reason why Windows is still the number one gaming OS in the world is because, well, they at least listen to people. Um, I wasn't sure if we should cover Windows 11 because meh, but uh, apparently it's still a very big deal revenue wise for Microsoft. Uh, they've got 1.3 billion users around the world of Windows and Windows brought in 48.2 billion in revenue in the last fiscal year. So, yes, Windows still matters. All right, a quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Palo Alto Networks. We're continuing to confront the pandemic and most businesses understand that remote or flexible work environments is gonna be the new normal going forward, but a predominantly remote workforce puts enormous pressure on legacy networking and security. So many organizations are grappling with the limitations of their current architectures, including scalability, security, and performance. So Palo Alto Networks wanna help you scale your remote workforces without compromise. You can securely enable your remote workers with Palo Alto Networks cloud-delivered security. It's called Prisma Access consolidates multiple point products into a single converged cloud-delivered platform, protecting all users and application traffic with best-in-class security while ensuring an exceptional user experience. You can get a virtual ultimate test drive to experience Prisma Access cloud-delivered security for yourself. Just sign up at paloaltonetworks.com slash resources slash test dash drives. That's paloaltonetworks.com slash resources slash test dash drives. We'll also have that link in the show notes. All right, let's get back to some news. Uh, there's a bunch of security scores we're gonna cover. First, the Department of Homeland Security says that US government agencies that suffered breaches because of compromised software from SolarWinds could have, quote, neutralized the malware, end quote, had they configured their firewalls to, how about this, block outbound connections from the SolarWinds software. This is where one of my dad's pieces of rustic wisdom comes in, and I, I, I wanna share it with the Packet Pushers audience. Son, if a frog had wings, it wouldn't bump his ass every time it hopped. Uh, what more can you say? You configured your firewall properly and you didn't get hacked. You didn't configure your firewall. You didn't get hacked. That ship has sailed, guys. Yes. If we had done that, we wouldn't have gotten hacked. If the Russians or whoever is allegedly responsible hadn't inserted cryptic malware DLLs into the software, we wouldn't have gotten hacked either. So congratulations on telling us something we already knew. I think what's frustrating about this is that, yes, people should have already known it and done it, but apparently weren't. Uh, uh, the same Reuters story is reporting that the U.S. government is preparing to spend billions of dollars to bolster its cybersecurity posture. And I'm all for investment in security, particularly if you're talking about hiring and training security folks. But if you're just getting 
if you're missing the low hanging fruit and you're going to start throwing a bunch of money at AI and MFL, uh, ML FUD from vendors when simple things like blocking outbound connections for software that doesn't need it, uh, just like. Bruh. Well, I mean, we've seen this a lot in the security space because it's much easier to get money to run a phishing test than it is to educate users on what phishing looks like. And I mean, I've even seen this from talking to some of the companies who are doing like, you know, very specific phishing uh, detection in emails. Like, you know, they were telling me about all this uh, money that they spent on the tech to like draw a pink box around the link that you shouldn't click on as an education method. I'm like, couldn't you just send an email out to people saying don't click on links in emails? Like, I, I, I've, I've been educated like that for years. Yes. Well, no, no, that's really hard because people don't listen. And I'm like, AI and ML don't listen either. They do exactly what they're told. And yet you're you're pouring millions of dollars of, of research and development into these things to basically make people not have to think anymore. What happened to user agency? I mean, my wife, my mom, my kids, they know not to click on things they're not supposed to. In fact, they're still at the point where they bring me something and go, does this look legitimate to you? And I'm like, no. You know what that cost me other than some air and a little bit of time talking nothing but you know the government they love to spend money on things that they can point at and go look it's a tank look it's a healthcare program yeah it's also uh not just the government who love to spend its enterprises and the security vendors have done an excellent job uh for years and years and years of selling them expensive things where you may be better off with education or with best practices uh so very frustrating all around all right, I'll get off my soapbox. Tom, you found a story about a bug where uh, connecting to a Wi-Fi hotspot that's using a string of unusual characters like a bunch of percentage signs can actually disable Wi-Fi on your iPhone. Yeah, this was funny to me because it kind of goes along the same thing that we were just talking about with the SolarWinds story. So um, if you click on the link in the show notes, uh, it'll tell you the network name. First of all, don't do this because it's a bad <laughs> thing. If you connect to this network, it will disable the Wi-Fi function in your phone, period. So you reboot it, it still goes away. The only way to get rid of it is to go in and clear all the network settings, which basically wipes the database on your phone of all your network settings. So you have to go back and reset them all up, which at least it's a fix. Remember when they had the weird thing with the watch, Apple watch, where if you sent it a certain text message, it would just send the watch into a reboot loop. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know a couple of people who had to get their watches replaced, like completely warrantied out because of that. Wow. Sorry, Mr. Shoemaker, I didn't realize that that was going to happen. Uh, but like, at least it's fixable. And I'm sure that there's going to be a point release from iOS uh, or Apple coming up really soon for iOS that's going to fix this bug. But this goes back to the, the thing we talked about with SolarWinds. Do not connect networks that you don't recognize because seeing it in the list doesn't cause this. It's when you actually connect that it's basically not sanitizing the, the SSID name. So it causes a bunch of escape sequences that sends the network stack into a crash state. Um, don't connect to networks you don't understand. Don't scan QR codes that offer to connect you to networks because that was the what the somebody came up with an idea to weaponize it that way. Um, but yeah, basically use a little common sense. Um, also, if you're wanting to get rid of your nosy neighbors, go ahead and name your network this. But you didn't hear that from me. All right. <laughs> uh, one more security story. VMware, they've issued a security update for their Carbon Black security software. The update fixes a remote auth authentication vulnerability that would let an attacker with network access bypass authentication on the Carbon Black app control management server. The vulnerability has a 9.4 out of 10 severity rating. So if that's you, get to fix them. I don't know how many times they've had like nines, like 9.8s, 9.9s recently and and they're all authentication things so i'm beginning to wonder that these are all kind of fruit of the poison the poison tree 
that there is a problem with the authentication mechanism in the back end and and they're trying to patch it as soon as possible but every time they they squash one bug they're starting to see another one um now it's funny because this is carbon black which is not vmware proper this was an acquisition a while back um, but i also love the people who come out and go you know well the solution to this is to not expose the servers to the internet you shouldn't have these things running publicly at all and i'm like you're right and if there was any other way around it, I wouldn't, but <laughs> I don't have the ability to VPN into the office every time I want to make a quick settings change, or maybe I have a contractor who can't do that. So rather than telling me things that I know I shouldn't do, fix the problem so that if I do things with it, I have to, it's not going to open me up to all kinds of craziness. Yes. And vulnerabilities in security products are never a good look, but of course, Better to admit it and patch it than try to hide it. So uh, at least kudos for that. All right, a last story for the day. Intel, they've hired Stanford professor and startup founder Nick McCune as a senior vice president and GM to head up the new network and edge group within Intel. Uh, professor McCune is going to report directly to CEO Pat Gelsinger. Uh, I bring this up because uh, Nick McCune was recently in a heavy networking episode with Greg Farrow, part of the Future of Networking series. So there's a connection there. Uh, and He's actually got a track record of, you may have never heard of him, but you do probably have heard of uh, Nicira, which became uh, NSX that VMware acquired for many billions of dollars. He was a co-founder. Uh, you may have also heard of Barefoot Networks, which was the programmable uh, switching silicon. He was a co-founder that was in fact purchased by Intel. Uh, so there's a lot of connections here and I could see why Pat Gelsinger uh, sees Nick as somebody potentially valuable to an organization and wanting to wrap him up and bring him in. Yeah, if you in college football fandom, we talk a lot about coaching trees where you have like a coach that is like really successful and then all of their assistant coaches go on to be super successful at other places. And so you can always trace that history back to that one person. Dr. Nick McEwen is that for software defined networking. If you do anything with software defined networking, you need to go shake the man's hand because everybody who has developed anything in SDN likely either came out of his class at Stanford or worked for somebody who did, because these are super brilliant people. And it's funny that he went on to be a part founder of Barefoot Networks. And then when Barefoot got acquired by Intel, the one thing they didn't get was him. And I mean, when you're him, you don't have to do that. You don't have to go to work for them. <laughs> right. And I think probably what happened is, is that he's finally had enough of snotty college students showing up, you know, drinking a Mountain Dew and not paying attention to his lecture notes. And so he's like, you know what, I'm, I'm going to go get paid while I still can. And, and props to him. I'm, you know, he's, he's working for somebody that quite honestly, I would love to work for. Pat Gelsinger is a great human being. And so, you know, that track record was proven out with the way that he took Nasira and, and basically formed it into NSX. And so why not go reshape the way that Intel is doing things? And in the last few times that we've seen Intel at Networking Field Day, the uh, Tofino chips that were developed at Barefoot are front and center in everything. P4 is becoming the de facto standard for doing forwarding plane programming. Sign uh, <laughs> our OpenFlow. Right. Yeah. P4 is an open source programming language to let you program the silicon. And I was wondering about if that had something to do with it, because we know Edge is a hot market. Uh, Intel is getting into smart NICs. P4 could maybe play a role there. So having yeah. someone like uh, Professor McEwen in, in the shop to help uh, extend the development and the applicability of P4 could be good for Intel. Aside from I the fact that, that he's a smart guy, he must have a million contacts with, you know, smart up and coming uh, grad students at Stanford. Uh, his role as an educator and advisor to generations of influential students must be also an appeal for Pat. 
Yeah, and and that's that can't be understated. I will tell you for a fact that P4 is going to play a huge role in the development of the DPU market. Um, because if you go back and you watch some of the the stuff from Pensando when they first came out, uh, by the way, Pensando being the DPU that was created by Mazzola, Primjane, um, the MPLS crew of right. everything Cisco ever made that was successful fame. Yeah, UCS um, and CME, et cetera. Yeah, they had to modify P4 to work as the forwarding plane for their DPU, which is very focused on storage right now. And and I got to talk to, um, I think it was Prem, at, uh, at one of the last conferences I went to in person. He goes, yeah, we use P4. Like kind of matter of factly, <laughs> and I'm sitting over here like, wait, networking stuff? He goes, yeah, we fixed it. So I think what they're gonna do is they're gonna bring in Nick's experience to help them kind of standardize the the changes to P4 and optimize them. So I would honestly not be shocked to see Tofino get dropped into a DPU at some point to kind of accelerate all those extra workloads. Cause I mean, when you think about it, it's all IO on the back end, right? Yeah, I guess we can put that on the prediction spreadsheet. Uh, yeah, so check out that uh, heavy networking interview that Greg did uh, with Professor McEwen. He's also a great speaker, so it's very informative if you want to check it out. Uh, that does wrap up the news portion. Tom, where can folks find you online? Well, the easiest place to find me is on Twitter. I'm at Networking Nerd. Uh, my blog is networkingnerd.net. Uh, that's where I occasionally write snarky responses to things going on in the industry. Um, but if you want to check out my Bruce Wayne day job, you can head over to techfieldday.com. Uh, I've got a networking event that'll be coming up uh, later this year in September. I've also got a mobility event coming up in July. I've got great groups of people. You can check those out. And if you want to catch some of the stuff that I've been writing, some of the briefings I've been taking, that's gestaltit.com. Um, just look for my name and get ready to have all the fun. Yeah, I will say if you're a blogger, if you're looking at networking, wireless, uh, AI, storage, uh, all kinds of stuff, and you're interested in getting involved in Tech Field Day, I highly recommend it. It's a great experience. You get a ton of information. You also meet a ton of excellent people because the Tech Field Day crew do a good job of bringing in good folks. So if you're curious, reach out to Tom, tell him, hey, you want to participate. Uh, you will not regret the experience. Uh, Tom, thanks for getting up early to come uh, sit in for Greg. I really appreciate it. Oh, no problem. I'm just going to go eat some uh, Vegemite and a few musk sticks and go hide <laughs> from the kangaroos and the drop bears. There it is. That's what I was waiting for. All right. Stay tuned for our sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Telia Carrier. We're going to find out more about its IP service and 400 gig. That's coming right up. Welcome to the Tech Bytes podcast from the Packet Pushers. Today, we're talking global IP backbones and 400 gig with sponsor Telia Carrier. Telia Carrier recently spun off from the Swedish telecom Telia company, and they're ready to compete for your IP business here in the United States. The company offers a variety of services from multiple pops in the States. And here to tell us more is Matthias Friedstrom. He is VP and Chief Evangelist at Telia Carrier. Uh, Matthias, welcome to the podcast. And for listeners who maybe aren't familiar with Telia Carrier, can you give us like the brief overview? Yeah, thank you very much for being here. You know, yeah, as you said, you know, Telia Carrier is one of the largest internet backbones. That's what we are famous for, the carrier and wholesale business that we do. But since a couple of years ago, you know, the, the enterprises are more and more using cloud services and public internet services. And therefore, you know, we're turning our company in that direction as well. It doesn't mean that we'll leave the carrier wholesale space, but we will also focus on enterprise services for the large amount of capacity that they need. Okay, so if I'm an enterprise company looking for IP services, for backbone services, for cloud access, you've got something for me potentially. Absolutely. I think we would be an ideal choice for you. Uh, if you're after any, any type of connectivity between your, yourself and your headquarter or wherever you need your connectivity to go, we would be an ideal choice for you. 
And obviously you've got roots in Sweden, but you've built out a global backbone. So what kind of services are you offering in the States and, and where do you have points of presence? Yeah, we have uh, more, more than 100 points of presence in the US. I think I counted 105 this morning. So we're practically everywhere. We're also in Mexico and Canada. So we, we cover the North American market really well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would say, you know, if you're after any type of internet connectivity, you know, could be IP Transit if you're an ISP or IP Connect, IP Connect if you're an enterprise uh, and you need to use your software as a service applications on the internet, we would be an ideal choice for you to connect to. But of course, if, you, if you're only after transport services between your, uh, your offices around the world or your headquarters around the US, we would be a good choice for you as well. You know, any, any type of connectivity or connection to the internet is, is really what we do and what we're famous for. So I know in a recent blog, and we'll have a link to it in the show notes, uh, Telia Carrier was touting your, your adoption of, of 400 gig. Why is that important to Telia Carrier? And actually, more importantly, why should potential customers care? I think, you know, we, we need to keep up with the traffic growth. We, we saw a 58% traffic growth in, in 2020 during the pandemic. You know, when everyone started to work from home, everything shifted to being more in the cloud and so on. You need to keep up with the traffic growth. So for us to keep up with our customers and their need for traffic, we just need to upgrade our backbone. The next step in our backbone upgrade is 400 gig, which is, of course, extremely important. I would say very few enterprises are on that level right now if you mm-hmm. don't if you kind of exclude Amazon and, and Facebook from the enterprise sector. But more and more companies start coming towards this. You know, they need large bandwidth for big file transactions or big things that need large connectivity. So I would, for us, it's a natural step to grow our network. It is also a very good thing, you know, because part of our cost is, is cross-connect inside data centers. You know, you need to pay the data center owner a lot of cross-connect fees. So when you go from from an, a lot of 100 gig or 10 gig trans, uh, transport services into 400 gig, you also lose a lot of cross-connect and you thereby save a lot of money, which of course in the end is good for our customers because someone needs to pay for these cross-connects in the end. And if it's not us, then it's not our customers as well. So 400 gig is a very, very important step for us in our growing network needs. Uh, Greg, you've got a favorite saying that bandwidth tends to solve most problems. No, bandwidth solves all networking problems. <laughs> Whatever the question is, bandwidth is the answer. And so when you talk about things like 400 gig, see, it, it, and this is really simple to understand in a way, like if I drive down a motorway and it was 30 miles an hour, if I increase it to 60 miles an hour, then it, but it's only one lane, it goes twice as fast. But when you change the speed of the network from 100 gig to 400 gig, not only are you increasing from one lane to four lanes, so four lanes of 100 gig ineffectively because the flow is distributed evenly, but you're also increasing the speed from 100 miles an hour to 400 miles an hour. So every time you upgrade the bandwidth, you're actually improving the performance in two dimensions. And that's why this more bandwidth solves all networking problems. It reduces latency. It increases reaction times because the trip out and back is so much shorter. It allows more companies, more customers, more endpoints, more traffic to flow because the whip has increased. And that's why when companies like Telia take this very mature approach to this and say, the answer is bandwidth, stable, secure, high volume, lots of it. And that's what we do. We don't try and turn it into some mystical service with incantations for quas or whatever. That's, we provide bandwidth. That's why I'm on board with that approach. 
Yeah, no, I, I couldn't have said it better. How far are you in your 400 gig deployment, particularly here in North America? I think in, in North America, we're starting to upgrade most of the backbone routes. So that's, you know, between the large data centers or the large, practically the large cities in US, that's happening. Then, of course, uh, as we speak about 400 gig, there's also a new technology coming out. That's the 400 gig ZR, which is a different version of the 400 gig that we talked about before. You know, uh, this is putting more features into a plug that you can put into a router. You, you actually put part of the DVDM equipment, the optical gear into the plug of the router. And that's a new technology that's coming onto the market this year. Uh, we've ordered our first stuff of that, but we haven't implemented it yet because it's not sort of generally available from all the suppliers. Uh-huh. We worked with Cisco and Acacia during the Christmas period to test it in our network, and it's actually going to work. And what you really do then is you can you kind of replace your Metro DVDM stuff. The, you, you replace the, the Metro DVDM highways between data centers within the city by shooting directly from a router to another router in that city. And for us who are in as I said in the in the beginning, in about 100 places in the US, it means that we can probably be in 200 places in a year's time with very little less cost. Uh, we, you know, you buy the pluggables, you ignore the DVDM layer in between data centers inside a city and you shoot from router to router. You obviously still mean, you, you still need the fibers between the data centers, mm-hmm. but that's less of a cost than, than buying a lot of optical expensive stuff. So this new technology is extremely exciting for us. And of course, everything our customers want is more connectivity at less cost. Uh, and this so, is a perfect way for us to do that. You, you just said something really interesting there. You're actually suggesting that the cost of the optical equipment that goes onto the fiber is actually the biggest cost now. The fiber in the ground is not as expensive or is not the, like uh, it's been a, a paradigm for the last 20 years that trenching the fiber in the ground is expensive and hard. And that's where the money is. And you're now saying that the balance is now shifting back to the optical components that go into the edge. The optical components has always been a, a high cost, but you're right when you say that the, the, the fiber is also an extremely expensive cost. And if you think about building fibers between New York and Chicago, that's very expensive to uh-huh. build new fibers there. But yeah. if you think about building fibers inside a city, yeah, that's that's expensive, but it's evenly expensive to put the DVDM on top of that one. If we now can ignore that DVDM layer and shoot directly from a router to router instead of having something that, that right. transports the traffic in between, you actually install the laser and the, the processor into a plug that you put into a router and thereby replacing the entire DVDM box with a small, small plug. That technology is breakthrough. Right. So this is the strategic shift is where before it would have been router, optical, fiber optic, optical box, router. We're now seeing this, what they call IP optical, I think is the term some people, some companies use, which is the SFP becomes an optical launch, a DWDM straight in the router and it's IP over DWDM. And that changes the cost dramatically is what you say. It really does. And then, of course, you know, they've, they've standardized this, so they fit everything into a QSFB DD pluggable, which means that you use the same plug as you use normally. So we don't need to change any of our IP routers out there because uh-huh. this one is just going to fit into them. Uh, and that's a revolutionizing way of building networks, especially less than 40 kilometers. You know, the technology mm. thinks it can go all, all the way up to 120 kilometers. But I think, you know, just having it for 40 kilometers within the city is, is going to be fantastic for us. 
And this whole the whole point of this optical and IP convergence partly is that it becomes uh, it's cheaper for you to upgrade, but that means you can also pass on those savings to folks who want to use your services. Absolutely, one of the biggest costs when we sell to an enterprise is the cross connect fee that we have to pay to an enterprise to a data center owner or the fiber across the city because we're not in exact the same locations as the enterprises are. What happens now is that we can be in many more locations. Instead of being in four locations in Chicago, we can be in 10 locations in Chicago, thereby meeting every enterprise in Chicago where they are and not tell them, you know, oh, great, we're on the other side of the city, but we'll bring you there. <laughs> it's going to cost you a fortune, but you'll be connected. Now we can connect them wherever they are. And that's it's also, it also changes the way you use internet exchange points or telehousing, you know, where you can be in so many more places because you don't need so much space. You could have literally a one RU router with an optical interface, whereas before you would have needed half a rack and a, with an optical box with a shelf, you know, and the line cards and all that sort of stuff. Now it's just a router. So it yeah, absolutely. To, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's absolutely true. And, and if you look into a carrier or a wholesaler and their cost structure, I can say that power and space are actually quite high cost for us. And if we now need a lot less space and a lot less power, lot less spare parts, a lot less of everything, just so much better. I think you also raise an interesting point about physical location because you know when we throw up a, a diagram on the whiteboard, there's a cloud and it's just there. But you're talking about even within, you know, in, in the, the denseness of a city like Chicago, the location can actually matter. The physical location of where my colo is, one side of town or the other can really make a difference cost-wise. Absolutely. No, absolutely. There's, you know, fibers are not for free. And, and people who build these fibers, especially building inside a city, is quite expensive. You need to sort of stop the traffic on the city for a while and you need to dig it down and so on. That's actually a cost. And these guys want their money back uh, in a nice way. So I think, I think that's something that hits us as wholesalers and, and thereby, you know, we push it on to our customers. Another thing I think is interesting here is just how fast Cisco has been willing to adopt 400 gig and move to actually converge around the modules here and bring the, and you have actually, one of the things about Telia is actually how quickly you move to adopt new technologies. Yeah, no, I think that for us to be in the forefront of technology and to be in the forefront and, and in our customer experience, I think we need to push the limits all the time. And I think we're not mm -hmm. afraid of testing things in our network. It's only really when you test things that you understand how they work. So I think, you yeah. know, we're very prone to test new stuff. Uh, and this new technology was something that we saw immediately, you know, wow, there's a use case for us here immediately. Let's test it. Yeah, yeah. So, Just, and to, sorry, Greg, go ahead. I, I, yeah, three, two. I just want to ask Christian here, can I use these new coherent optical interfaces that go into routers? And I still need new line cards in routers or specific routers that support these modules. They're not, you know, Ethernet SFPs. They're quite specialized and, and unique. But can I use them on existing fiber? Do I actually need to rebury the fiber or is it just literally a case of rotating out the equipment at the edge? I mean, for where no, absolutely. You, you, it's, the, it's the equipment at the age you need to uh, you need to change. Uh, I would say most of the stuff we already have in there are capable of taking on these pluggables even now. You know, QS, QSFP plugs have been there for, for a long time. So may, many of our routers are already prepared for this. But the mm. fibers in between are going to be perfect. You know, even fibers installed 20 years ago are still good enough to, to use for this. You know, there's there's a lot of research in fiber and a lot of new stuff that we talk about, you know, hollow core and dual core and all that stuff. But so far, the, the normal single mode fibers that is in every city around is still nice and, and works really well. 
Mm-hmm. So I, I guess I feel like I have to ask, ask you the obligatory question about the pandemic and distributed work. Um, we're seeing more employees splitting time between home and office, and it seems like that may be the way going forward. Are, do you anticipate that these kind of changes are going to have an effect on the broader WAN market where you compete? I, I absolutely think it has. Uh, I think more and more companies are realizing that it actually, it, it, you can work from home and it's going to be perfectly fine to work from home. I think in the beginning we saw uh, a lot of them do major upgrades to, to cloud services and so on. But now I see that more and more of them understand that the public internet will probably bring their end users to the clouds where they have their applications. And, and mm. that's going to change the way people think about their WANs. You know, WANs in the, in the past were extremely difficult and, and, and complicated networks privately built for them. I think more and more people will realize, you know, yeah, most of my trouble can actually go on the public internet. And if I do have my applications in the cloud and people reach the cloud through public internet, you know, why not? Yeah. There's certain stuff, certain data you don't want to have out there. You know, maybe your financial data should go directly to a cloud through an MPLS circuit. But I think most of the traffic you can actually leave on the public internet and, and be fine. Yeah. I call it the permissionless network. I don't need permission to use the internet. I don't need a telco to provision me a service and have their permission to connect from here to here. I want to use the public network. I think the other part here is not so much about distributed work, the idea that people are going to return the work or work from different offices like around the place. But I think the other issue, which people haven't yet glommed onto, is that the nature of communication between companies is going to change as well. And that is we're going to be using much more video conferencing for company to company, for customer to sales and within supply chains and talking about how do we move supply chains. So where before, you know, uh, there's that famous meeting in Apple where they were talking about something and the person said, yes, well, I'll go to China and get that sorted out. And 10 minutes later, Steve Jobs turned around to the person and said, why are you not already on your way to the airport? I mean, why would you go to the airport, right? <laughs> so I think this, this, and bandwidth solves all of these problems. There's a lot of people out there saying, oh, we need special low latency networking. And I'm like, well, you only need low latency networking in extremely niche use cases, or if there wasn't enough bandwidth to start. Yeah, no, you're perfectly right. And I, I, I was amazed the amount of traffic that we sold to these um, video conferencing companies. And that traffic is still growing. It's it's just, you know, I checked the numbers for, for April and May 2021, and that traffic is still growing to the major video conferencing, meaning that people are haven't started traveling yet and are still using these type of things. And I think if I look at our company, you know, there's so many things we will never travel for anymore. Uh, mm. Some customers you need to meet sometimes but most of the meetings you don't need to meet uh in, in private you can meet over video video works just so fine. this is where companies and so from your point of view you would be reaching out to enterprises saying please come and connect to our backbone because we've got this technology and these features absolutely we have an ecosystem connected to us you know so security companies cloud companies software as a service companies pretty much everyone is connected to our network so if they just connect to our network they can have this smorgasbord of of all the connections we have and and take advantage of them you know mm. and there's just one thing i want to mention here telia carrier is now only focused on this backbone they're not interested in business services or enterprise services you just want to sell the bandwidth we just want to sell the bandwidth we obviously if, if someone comes and says you know could you could you please help us with some managed stuff we can do that for them but if they want us to run their applications or anything no that's not for us you know we're connectivity and we want to be the best in the world on connectivity and connectivity only so that's 
what we're after. So Matthias, if folks want to find out more or get a little bit more information, where would you send them? I would absolutely send them to our teliacarrier.com webpage. I think they can find anything they, they need there. Uh, that's the best source of information if they want to know more about us. All right, that's tiliacarrier.com. We'll also have some links in the show notes with links to blogs and other information. Uh, thank you, Matthias, for joining us. And thanks to Telia Carrier for being a sponsor. Sponsored shows help us make everything we do at Pack and Push as possible. Speaking of which, if you like this episode, there are many more fine, free, technical podcasts along with our community blog. It's all at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at packetpushers. Find us on LinkedIn and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.